This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. Good to see you all. My name is Jake. I'm a pastoral resident here at Redemption, and uh, I'm excited to be with you guys. And if this is your first time, thankful that you're here with us. Just wanted to say uh, happy Father's Day again, and I wanted to take a second and recognize that uh, for some of us, Father's Day is uh, not so much a happy day, but actually something that's hard for us, whether it be our relationships with our fathers or mourning the loss of a loved one. Um, Something that's very heavy this week is what's going on in Charleston. We've got some families that have been broken up just because of something like that. And I I didn't actually know anything about what was going on in Charleston. I kept hearing about it from people. I'm the least good person with news. I I don't keep up to speed on things. So I was like, I probably should figure out what's going on since I'm preaching that day and we're going to have like a prayer meeting about it. Probably should know what we're talking about. So I looked up online, just quickly Google searched Charleston. And uh, you know what the first headline that I read was? Charleston church shooter. Here's victims can say, I forgive you. On CNN. I opened it up and I started listening to what was going on, the news story, and uh, began to hear the live feed during the bond-setting trial of the victims next in kin, their family members, daughters of some of the women that got shot, brothers of some of the men that got shot. And these family members stood up face-to-face with their literal enemy and uh, through tears said, I forgive you. And I was so blown away at just the real example of what it means to live all of life, all for Jesus. Amen? And we had our brothers and sisters today. They're having worship again. And I was just so thankful and encouraged to see them live out life knowing the forgiveness that God has given them. And one of the victims, the daughters of the victims, said word for word, you took something really precious from me, her mother. I will never get to talk to her again. I'll never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And I love hearing stories like this when someone who's a Christian responds with overwhelming love and forgiveness in the midst of enemies or trial or persecution. And yet, sometimes I go through moments where I go, you know, maybe I wouldn't do the same thing. I'd like to think that I would. I'd like to think that I would also stand up in that brokenhearted moment and say, I forgive you, I love you. And yet, last night, I ended up watching the movie Django Unchained. I've never actually seen it. Super violent. Wouldn't recommend it. Um, unless you want to see it, then whatever. But I watched it, and uh, the, the director has this really good way of making the story tell and unfold itself to the point that there's so much injustice that when overwhelming violence hits on screen, you're like, Get him. Go for it. And I watched one of the most bloody massacres on film and the whole time going, eh, they deserved it, slave traders. And yet I woke up and watched my brothers going to church and worship after face-to-face forgiving their literal enemy with overwhelming love in the midst of tears. How do you do that? How do, you, how do you have that kind of boldness and empowerment in the face of trials? How do you live out as a Christian in such an identity that's so deeply rooted that you're going to act out of it even in the worst moments? That's what Mark is doing in his gospel here. You got an audience who's getting this letter and they are persecuted. They're a ragtag bunch of new Christians who are both Jews, Gentiles, and just associating with the name of Jesus, you could have gotten killed back then. 
And so what he's doing is he's taking these stories and he's unfolding the message of Jesus and all the while he's shaping a people to empower them to live and stand up in the midst of persecution. And he's teaching them what binds Christians together. What is their deep identity that makes them be able to live together and be a one people and be a light to this world and to the nations around them. And so that's where we pick up in our story today, and we're going to jump right into it. If you have a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, if you have a Bible, you're fine. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone's going to come alongside and pass out a Bible. And you can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 24. Now, just a heads up, we're going to cover three stories today. The first one, we're going to walk through slowly. We're going to talk about in depth. The next two, we're going to fly through for the sake of time. And I think also it's doing something special with what Mark is teaching his people. So just a heads up. You can read along with me, starting in verse 24. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. So for the last six chapters, Mark is unfolding the story of Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom, proclaiming that he's going to restore God's people, and the whole world is going to experience forgiveness and restoration. And the Pharisees are attacking him, and even his apostles, his disciples, his best guys are still scratching their heads going, we're not getting it. I mean, in the last story, he literally says, then are you also without understanding? Are you guys still not getting it? How are you too not getting this as well? And so Jesus takes his disciples, he pulls them aside, and what I think he's doing is having a discipleship moment. He's getting with his boys, and he's trying to hammer into their heads what they can't understand, that Jesus is here not to throw miracles out, Not to overthrow the Roman government, but to bring in the kingdom of God. And so it's in the midst of this story of all these people not getting it that we find the first person to actually understand one of Jesus' parables. So this woman runs and throws herself down at Jesus' feet. She's a Gentile. Mark tries to make it really apparent that she doesn't belong. He goes, she's a Gentile. She's also a Syrophoenician in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, what that means is she's belonged to the region that was absolute enemies with Jews, and she's coming to hang out with the Jewish rabbi. Tyre and Sidon and the Syrophoenicians, those are the people where Jezebel, the story of Jezebel, came from. You don't have to know anything about church history or the stories of God to know that you probably, if you're a young lady, don't want to ever be called a Jezebel. And so this is where this woman's from. She's coming, she's throwing her face down in front of Jesus, and she goes, please, my daughter has a demon. Help. And Jesus responds in a way that I didn't, I didn't really expect. He says, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. When I read this, I, I, I was like, what? Did you just call her a dog? And yet, we're going to walk through what Jesus is doing, and it's quite miraculous how much love he has for this woman. Yet, when you hear that, I just want to let it rub us wrong the wrong way for a little bit. I mean, if you have a Jesus that everything he says just comes right in and it never bugs you, it never makes you go, whoa, wait a second, then you probably have a Jesus that is more just fit to your life, and he's a good buddy, and he's a good friend, but he's not Lord. 
And so I want to let God's word shape us in that way. And so we're just going to move right on to the next things that she's going to say. But first off, why would Jesus even say something like that? What is he saying? What he's talking about is the order of salvation. God had a special people, Israel. And what he did was bless them so much that the rest of the world would go, wow, I really want to be a part of that. I want to know God. And through that, the whole world that had fallen away from God would actually get to know God. And yet they failed miserably. And so God started promising them that he was going to bring them back, that he was going to bring in this Messiah. And through that Messiah, he was going to gather in the people of Israel. He was going to restore them and fix them and put them back together. And then the whole world would be able to enjoy in the benefits that this small nation of Israel was the only one that got before. So Jesus doesn't just simply, I mean, God doesn't just break his promises with his people and then cover them over with new promises. He is still after Israel. Yet, this woman comes up to him, and instead of entirely ignoring her, he tells her a parable. And how she responds is pretty wild. She says, she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She she didn't make Jesus enter into her world. She stepped into the parable and she responded to Jesus within his world. The disciples, the Pharisees, everybody up to this point has been fine with Jesus' healing, been fine with his teaching, but they want to make it so that it fits into the way they think about the world. Everything is good as long as it's going to fit to how they view things. And this is the first woman to understand one of Jesus' parables because she jumps into it and responds to him from within it. She ignores the fact that she got called a dog, and she just jumps into the parable and starts communicating and responding with Jesus all the same. I mean, why, why would she do this? I think there's two things she sees. I mean, I wonder, I wonder if she doesn't have a hint of what God is doing in the world. I wonder if maybe she had heard some stories in the Old Testament, stories about the prophet Elijah who did mighty things for Israel, and yet he would take little side trips, and Syrophoenician women would actually also have their children restored. And I wonder if she didn't hear the prophecies and go, you know what, I hear some of those, and I know God's restoring Israel, but I hear some things about the Gentiles getting brought in too. I wonder if she doesn't look at Jesus and have a suspicion, you know what, I think God might actually be about the whole world. And the other thing I think she has going for her is she's desperate. Desperation, in a lot of ways, can be the difference between life and death. And I think in this moment, that's exactly what is going on. You know, I started rock climbing about a year and a half ago. I love it to death. It's a lot of fun. And one of the coolest things you could ever do in rock climbing is a move called a dino. It sounds really cool because it is really cool. It's the move where people, like, jump off a rock and then grab onto another rock, and you look like you came straight out of Mission Impossible. And uh, I've done them before in the gym because they're, they're, not, they're not super hard. It's not a lot of strength that's taken or technique. It's, it's all a mental thing. It's being able to tell your body, okay, let go what is holding onto my life, fly through the air, and then grab something that's going to save me. But I've never tried one outside. No way. Not when I'm on the side of a cliff, and I can see down my friends holding me on the rope, and they're like, hey, and I'm like, what? Because I can rock climb, and I can take a rock, and I can reach up and go, uh, oh, it doesn't feel good. Come back. 
I know one day I might have to actually do a dyno. The only time I would actually do one, this happens in rock climbing, your rocks start crumbling. And if my hands hold started breaking and slipping and I could feel them slipping off, oh, you better know, I'm jumping off of that thing and I'm grabbing the first thing that I can hold on to. That's what Jesus is doing for this woman. You see, she comes to a point where she has no other options and she jumps for Jesus. And you know what? Jesus loves her. Why does he say this to her? Why does he respond to her this way? Why does he push her to the edge of desperation? Because the gospel blooms when desperation meets face-to-face with Jesus. The only thing in between this woman, just like everybody else who was missing it, and her understanding the gospel is the illusion that she has any other options besides this man's life, Jesus Christ. The only thing that holds us back as a people from living bold, from standing up in the face of the enemies and tear-soaked saying, I forgive you still, the only thing that holds us back from living all of life, all for Jesus, is those moments where we think we got other options besides desperately clinging to Jesus. And so I think Jesus lovingly here takes this woman and brings her to a point where she can see the gospel crisp and clear. And she goes, I don't care if I'm a dog. I don't care if I'm the dust on the table. I don't care if I am the window curtains or the ground or the child. If I'm in the house of God, I'm going to get the blessings. Lord, I don't care if I'm in there as a dog. I'm getting the scraps. I'm getting fed. She knows if I'm in the house where Jesus is in charge, I've seen your work, Jesus. I know my life's going to get restored. I know my daughter is going to have the demon cast out of her. And Jesus responds, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. This statement, he says. This is the statement. This is the gospel coming alive. This desperation to cling to me. No other options. This statement you may go your way. I wonder if Jesus hadn't already healed and cast out the demon at that point. I wonder if as he's having the conversation with the woman, the demon's already gone. Because it's past tense, right? I mean, he says it. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Heads up, the demon's left. And if that's the case, what Jesus was doing was for this woman's heart, not for her daughter to have the demon cast out. Jesus knows he's on a mission to restore the world. The problem is, is we all have hearts where we think we have other options. We have the illusion that we have other things we can cling to besides Jesus. You want to have a powerful prayer life? Get desperate in the face of the Lord and know and approach that time going, I don't have anything but you. You want to give desperately in your life and make sacrifices? Then come to the table going, you know what, Jesus? I don't have anything but you. If you want to stand up in the midst of persecution and be bound together as a people with one identity, it is a desperation, it is a need to cling and run to Jesus. And so she goes home. The demon's already left. And Jesus goes right on to the next story, right on to the next thing. Because even though, as a people, the gospel comes alive with this kind of desperation, we have moments where we totally biff it, right? Instead of going, man, you know what? The slave trader should actually get mercy and forgiveness and grace too because I was an enemy of God. No, I go, kill him. Sounds like a good end of the story to me. The reason we biff it and we, instead of living all of life all for Jesus in these moments, but come to church with shame for something we've done that week or because we've really failed to live up to the standards is because in those moments where we fail, we think we have other options. 
And Mark's gospel, to his audience, this audience also is struggling too. So breathe in, breathe out. The first Christians also were struggling to figure out what it meant to be a people of God, to live all of life all for Jesus, to live in such a way that this world would go, whoa, I want that. They also were struggling to figure it out. And so Jesus just keeps going on with his story. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So Jesus is still in the same Gentile region. And he's there, and he's, he's doing healings, and someone comes up to him, and they start begging him, hey, our friend, he can't hear, he can't speak, he can't do anything. Can you please put your hands on him, heal him? And Jesus brings him aside by himself, and he heals him. He takes him away from the crowd, because it's not about working miracles, it's not about getting all this name and fame. I mean, Jesus is on the road to die for this world. But he knows that man is a person. He's not another number. He's not another unnamed miracle that goes in the book. He is an individual that needs to have a face-to-face encounter with God. And so Jesus comes up to him, and he puts his fingers in his ears. He spits on his hand, and he touches his tongue in the most intimate moments, and he says, be opened. And the first thing that man hears is Jesus' voice. The first thing that man, who couldn't hear anything, maybe his whole life, maybe just because of a terrible accident, maybe the last thing he heard was a fight he had with his family, and suddenly the first thing he gets to hear is the Lord of the universe saying, be opened, listen, hear. And the crowd goes wild. Everybody gets excited. People are like, wow, this is amazing. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I can't believe what is going on. I mean, Jesus is here. He's making pockets of heaven appear all over earth. When God made the world, he said, made the trees, those are very good. Made people, those are very good. And what we know is in this world, there's a lot of not good things. This week was evidence of it. There's a lot of broken things, broken people, broken relationships, broken world. And yet Jesus is in this world. Why? Because he's getting things back to where we can say it was very good. He's getting things back to the way they were supposed to be, where God could look at it and go, everything is good. And you know what's surprising about this story? Turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 17. I'll wait there for you guys to dig it with me. And then keep your finger on verse 7. We're going to jump right back over. Mark 5, verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus walked into the Decapolis, same region that we have the healing going on today, same place. And he heals a man who has demons, casts them out, and everybody is freaking out. They say, get out, Jesus. We don't want to deal with this. We don't want you to be around. Get out of our city, and Jesus leaves. Now turn your Bibles back to 7, verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. The people that begged Jesus to leave now are begging him to heal their friend. The people said, get out. We don't want anything to do with you right now. We don't want anything to do with all this craziness. This is too big. It's blowing our world out of proportion. Get out, get out of here. Are now back because they've heard of Jesus. They've heard of what he's done. And they're going, you know what? Heal our friend. We know you can do this. 
The people who begged God to get out of their lives are begging him to get back in. I love that that's the beginning of this story. A lot of our stories began this way. You know, this is kind of like, I mean, you guys ever been dumped by someone and you know that they're going to, or they say, that they're going to be with someone who's just a little bit better than you? Cool, the last service was silent. I was like, yeah, me neither, and then I just moved on. (laughs) When I was in high school, I had this little, like, relationship, and it was like, the relationship you have at school, but like no other places. And this girl uh, that I was dating, she started hanging out with one of the senior wrestlers on my wrestling team. And he was better than me, and I really looked up to him until this moment that I was really mad at him. And, and so we broke things off. And then later in my high school career, when I was a senior, and started approaching me again, wanted to hang out. And I was like, oh, now I see. And I would expect Jesus to do this in this moment, wouldn't you? These people who come like, hey, please heal our friend. And Jesus would go, hey, weren't you the people of the same Decapolis who said, get out of town? And yet, what does Jesus actually do? He pulls the man aside, away from everybody else, the crowd, all the distractions, and he has a one-on-one, face-to-face interaction with the man who needs restoration and life and healing. You see, we see status We see color, we see race, we see different things in our lives, we see our past history, we see the brokenness. You know what Jesus sees in all these moments? Need. He sees need. He sees our need for him. And so even though they're like, get out of our lives, Jesus, just kidding, we want you back. Jesus goes, I see need. I see a man who needs to be restored. I see a man who needs to be pulled aside, and he needs to hear the God of the universe say, open up your ears and listen to me. The man who never was supposed to hear actually got to hear. The man who never was supposed to hear anything actually got to hear. And, you know, in this verse, the word for speech impediment in verse 32, that's only used one other time in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Isaiah 35. And I'll just go ahead and uh, I'm going to turn there. You guys can follow along. You can turn there to Isaiah 35, if you will, for me. And it's going to be up on the screen, so if you just want to read along. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The people who were never going to sing got to sing. The people who never were going to dance to God's glory, they get a dance. God promises when the Messiah comes, the people you least expect to be a part of the party are going to be at the center of the party. The deaf man who was never going to hear the gospel because he couldn't hear anything, he's the one that hears it. The woman who was everything going against her, who wasn't supposed to be the person who got the parables, gets the parables and enters into the kingdom of God. As Christians, aren't we all the most unlikely to become Christians? Maybe you were 12 years old, or you know, eight years old. You got spanked, and you're like, Jesus, and I 
I pray that kids, my kids, if I have them someday, will have stories like this. But for maybe you have a story more like mine where you grew up in the church the whole time and you heard all the stories and yet you weren't impressed. Not because of the people of God, but because your heart was heart. Or your, your heart was hard. And so maybe you're in here today and you're hearing this and you're like, you know what, I don't, I don't have any moments of desperation right now. I've, metaphorically, do have a lot of other options to find satisfaction. I just want to say that the people who begged God to get away from him ended up begging him to come back. Maybe right now you are sitting here and you don't want anything to do with God. That's okay. God's going to chase after you the rest of your life. And I pray that you don't wait until you exhaust every single one of your options to find out that Jesus is the only one that actually works. For those of us in here who are Christians, I pray that we wouldn't go our weeks and our times trying every other option in life to be reminded constantly, Jesus is the only one I can desperately cling to. Jesus is the only one that I actually need because the gospel comes alive when we recognize that we have need and we need to bring it face to face with the man Jesus and the man who never got to hear gets to hear God talk. We need to run to God as a people. That is, that's what Mark's doing to these people who are under persecution. He's showing them where's their identity, where are they supposed to belong, and what's going to identify them as a people. How are they going to be bold? By being really desperate. That's the backwards nature of the gospel all the time. How do you have everything you need? You get really needy. How do you be fully sustained and really perfect? You get really desperate. You cry out to God. You go, God, you are the only thing I have, the only option I have, the only way I can come to you and run to you. And you know what? It's unreal the amount of forgiveness that Jesus offers these people. You know what? Forget the fact that you begged me to get out of your life. I'll still let you come in. Maybe you experience it like me too. You were blown away that God would actually take you into his family after you begged him for years and years and years to leave. Or maybe you had a rough week this week. Maybe through some of your sins, maybe through some of the actions that you took. You didn't say it, but you and everything that you did said, God, get out of my life. I don't want to deal with this right now. And then you come on Sunday and you go, God, can you please come back? Can you please not leave me? And, and sometimes me, I go, is he just going to be like, now you want me? And yet we see him see nothing but need and come and enter in and go face to face. How does how does Jesus provide this kind of forgiveness? How does he provide this kind of life? I mean, how do we watch people like our brothers and sisters in Charleston stand up and go, you know what? You killed my mother, but I forgive you. You know what? You came in, you sat down with us for an hour, and you read the Bible with us, and then you got up and started shooting, but I forgive you. How do you do that? How do you get to a point where you can be that bold only because you know the amount of forgiveness that you have yourself? The very next story that Jesus has is the feeding of the 4,000. And Jesus gets together with a bunch of people, and they're all following him for three days, trying to be around him. And Jesus, he sees the people haven't eaten, and he goes, you know what? They need to eat. Here's what he says in verse 2 of chapter 8. I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And the disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate place? 
and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Might sound a little bit familiar because not even two chapters ago, Jesus said pretty much the same thing, did the same thing. The only difference, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they're a sheep without a shepherd. Really showing that God's people were still Israel. He's bringing Israel back in. But this time he says, I have compassion because they've been with me now three days. How do you belong to the people of God? Go to Jesus. Show up. Go show up in the grass and go try to be around Jesus' teachings. And these people were counted as the people of God. And that's what he, Mark's doing to his audience. He's saying it's not just about the Jews now, it's to everybody. Anybody who would come after Jesus, and yet Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he blesses it, and he hands it out, he hands it out, he hands it out. And people get fed, signifying Jesus' broken body. The disciples are here with Jesus, and they're going, how are we going to feed all these people? Which is exactly what they said in the last thing, and you'd think that they'd be like, hey, Jesus, there's a lot of people, there's a couple of bits of bread, you want to do like the... The breaking bread thing again. But Jesus is not a magician. They know it. And they might be dim-witted and missing parts of the gospel, but I think they're still here going, hey, what are we going to do? And Jesus, to signify what he's doing, he goes, how many loaves do you have? It's the exact same thing he said in the last story. How many loaves do you have is the answer to their question, as in, these people too. Anybody who would call my name. Anybody who wants to come in and spend time with me. And how is it going to be done? My bread is going to sustain the people of God. How? Because I'm going to break my body as I break this bread in half on the cross as the Romans murder me. And the Jews hand me over. And the people who are supposed to be saved by God end up murdering God. I looked at my brothers and sisters this week and I watched them with an overwhelming amount of forgiveness be a light to this whole world. Everybody's watching. They're in church right now, and there's a crowd out there, people praying for them. I mean, that prayer that we said today is being said by hundreds and thousands of churches across the country today. They're being a light, and they forgave in a way that seems almost impossible because to do that kind of forgiveness, you have to swallow the pain down and take it yourself and just go, I'm just going to take it. And in order for Jesus to forgive us so that we could be with him, he had to swallow down the cup of wrath of God. And those people were able to boldly forgive because they know, you know what? God forgave me when I was an enemy. And so as we go on throughout today and we think about how do I be a light, how do I love on people, I pray that we'd remember our brothers and sisters in Charleston and that we'd remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who would break his body so that we could be with him and know that the gospel comes alive when desperation and need meet face-to-face with the Lord of the universe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for real-life examples of how you are making a people, counterculture, who can blow this world away with the amount of love and forgiveness. You are showing that your church, Lord, is winning and that you are moving by your spirit. I love the fact, Lord, that in the face of horror and terror and murder and anguish, our brothers and sisters are still worshiping you. I pray today, Lord, that we would realize that the only thing we have going for us is you, Jesus. We don't have any other options. There's no other things that we can actually cling to. And so I pray that in our moments of prayer and our worship today and everything that we do, that we would go, Lord, all we have is you. Amen.